Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This episode is also brought to you by the Montauk Distilling Company. It was the love of water and beaches of Montauk, Long Island, known by locals as The End, that led to the birth of Montauk Distilling. Montauk Distilling Company is family-owned and operated at a small scale, saluting the rich history of the art and science of distilling with a fresh new approach. MDC is deeply rooted in their community and especially attuned to New York history. Their ambition is to become a principal in craft distillation of world-class rum and gin and a drink-local advocate from Montauk to Manhattan. Please visit MontaukDistillingCo.com to learn more about their products and the upcoming launch of MDC's Lighthouse Gallery, a culture and event space in East Harlem. Montauk Distilling Company. Great memories begin at the end. The Barry Boys episode 286, Uncovering the Hudson Yards. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're heading to the far west side, to the city's newest and largest ever real estate development. This is the newest thing we've ever talked about. In fact, it just opened Friday, this incredibly ambitious development. The largest private development since Rockefeller Center. Are you saying this is the first time we've actually been timely? (laughs) More or less, actually. We, are, of course, are talking about the Hudson Yards. Yes, so the, the largest private real estate development in American history in terms of square feet. But what's really even more amazing than that little factoid is that this entire development is constructed atop a train yard, the old West Side Yards, and this train yard is still active. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot that we could focus on today as part of this development, those those towers, Mm -hmm. the vessel, Mm -hmm. the shopping mall, and whether or not any of this really fits into today's New York. That is a big conversation. (laughs) But we're going to turn our focus onto the history of what lies beneath this massive new development. In essence, we're actually talking about a relatively small parcel of land and how decisions made over 150 years ago affect our lives today and have contributed to creating a multi-billion dollar architectural project. <laughs> right. The, the story is actually there in the land, in those train yards underneath today's new development. That is really the heart of the story, not just of the development, but of the entire far west side. And, and that story needs to be told to really even understand what in the world is going on above it. <laughs> 
And this is actually how we can contribute to this conversation with our podcast here. Are you saying that this podcast is actually our platform? <laughs> our platform, mm-hmm, yes. To explore the history uh-huh. of Hudson Yards. Well, listener, join us as we uncover the history of Hudson Yards. So the Hudson Yards here is so new, as of recording, it actually just opened last Friday. Right, on March 15th, 2019. Yeah, we walked around it that particular day. So many of our listeners may not even be aware of what this project is. So can you situate the location and give us a little bit of a description of what it is? Well, generally speaking, we're going to be focusing today on a parcel of land that is on the far west side of Manhattan, this development that is between 30th and 33rd streets and between 10th and 12th avenues. However, this is where it gets kind of interesting because there are actually two different Hudson Yards. Hudson Yards is the name that has been given to a redevelopment district mm-hmm. um, and kind of this whole neighborhood over here on the west side. And it's also the name that has been applied to this new private development, the first phase of which just opened last Friday. So the Hudson Yards Redevelopment District is much larger. That actually encompasses dozens of blocks, so it's a much, much larger area. But the development that we're focused on here, called Hudson Yards, is a commercial and office tower and residential development that is situated above the old West Side Yards, which is a train yard that's located between 10th and 12th Avenues and between 30th and 34th Streets. But I can see your eyes are kind of rolling backwards, Greg. So wait, let's just simplify this and, mm-hmm. and say that the development that just opened is just a couple blocks west of Madison Square Garden, okay? It's between Madison Square Garden and the water. Mm-hmm. It's just south of Javits Center. It is at the top of the High Line. And it's, it's really these six blocks that are between 10th and 12th Avenue and between 30th and 33rd. And so what does this development entail at the moment? Okay, so as we said before, this development is taking place over the old rail yard, which is still underneath it. It's down there. It, it serves as a storage facility for the Long Island Railroad. So this entire development that we're about to talk about with these enormous skyscrapers, most of that is built on a massive platform that has been erected over the train yard. And stick with me here. But the Hudson Yard project that is bounded by 10th and 12th Avenues, well, 11th Avenue runs right down the middle of it, right? Mm -hmm. 11th Avenue divides it into an eastern portion and a western portion. It was the eastern portion between 10th and 11th Avenues that just opened last Friday. The western portion between 11th and 12th Avenues will open in the future. And so the eastern section of the Hudson Yards, uh, what does it feature? What would you see if you walked through it today? Well, you can't help but noticing the large glass towers. In fact, there are six big towers, um, two giant glass office towers on the 10th Avenue side. Uh, and then there are also some residential mixed-use towers as well. There's also a seven-story luxury mall called the Shops and Restaurants at Hudson Yards. 
Uh, there's a cool looking, you know, flexible performance space called the Shed. And then at the center of it all in this public plaza is an art installation uh, by Thomas Heatherwick called Vessel, which looks like this giant hive of <laughs> staircases that are crisscrossing in the air. You can take an elevator to the top and then meander down the staircases, sort of Instagramming your heart out. Yeah, we'll get to that at the end of the show. <laughs> yes, I think we're going to be coming back to all of this. Yes. There's also a new there's a new subway stop as part of this, uh, the extension of the 7 train at 34th between 10th and 11th. And that stop, the Hudson Yard stop, opened in 2015. And most of this is completed, although there's still some construction work to do mm-hmm. on the on this eastern side. On the western side, the part of the development that hugs that curve of the High Line, that is completely undeveloped as of this moment, right? Right. That portion between 11th and 12th Avenue um, is still open. They don't. They haven't built the train platform yet. So when you visit. Uh, if you're on the High Line that's above 12th Avenue or you're at Hudson Yards at 11th Avenue looking down, you can see um, all of those Long Island Railroad trains beneath you. But in a few years, this will you know, have a platform and then residential towers above it, and it will be a new neighborhood, Greg, that I am calling Soja <laughs> for south of Javits. <laughs> Just like you to like not call it the Hudson Yards, just but make up your own ridiculous name. I like Soja, and I think there's a Soja shop in the shops at Hudson Yards. <laughs> but Tom, let's peel away these billions of dollars worth of development here. Let's let's take re- away those tax incentives. Takes away the t- take away the tax incentives. Uh, roll back the clock. Roll back the calendar. Mm-hmm. Almost two hundred years to this very spot to begin our story here, to the early 19th century. Well, about half of this land uh, would have been water because landfill would actually add much of what is west of 11th Avenue today. In fact, even going back a little bit further in the 1780s, I was looking at a map from the 1780s and you can see that the waterfront actually ran roughly along 11th Avenue at an angle. So everything west of that uh, was water. Another map I looked at in the 1830s still showed the island stopping at 11th Avenue, uh, and there was something called the, quote, chemical company uh, between 10th and 11th um, and between 32nd and 33rd. So obviously, this area has always been very picturesque. (laughs) (laughs) And aromatic, apparently. (laughs) But things changed, you know, when the Hudson River Railroad opened down here. In 1851, tracks had been laid down 11th Avenue to the terminal that was located actually between 10th and 11th Avenues from 30th to 32nd Street. So I know we're throwing out a lot of coordinates here, but just imagine that terminal, the original terminal of the Hudson River Railroad was located here right inside the portion of the Hudson Yards project that just opened. And you said 1850s Mm -hmm. and this was the terminus for the train. Why didn't it just like just continue down to the markets? Because far more people were living downtown than anywhere around here. Um, maybe I shouldn't say terminus. This was a depot. This was the terminus for the steam trains. There was a law in the books that steam-powered locomotives were not permitted south of here. So this was as far south as steam trains were able to go. So you couldn't have steam trains spooking everybody in the streets, carts being upturned, you know, it would be a complete mess. 
but it's because of this law that they built this particular depot here between 30 and 32nd Street. Right. This was as far south as they could go with steam trains. Passengers would have to disembark and then get on another train that was not steam powered. Pulled by a dummy engine. Pulled by a dummy engine. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm sure it was a very intelligent engine, but it was just called a dummy engine. Yes. It could have gone into an elite university, <laughs> especially if it had a high-powered parent. The engine would continue down 10th Avenue because 11th Avenue there ran into the water. So it, it had to go down 10th Avenue, following the waterfront, then down to Gansevoort, down to Canal, and then jutting into Hudson Street, and then south to its terminus at Chambers or later at the St. John's Park Terminal, which we discussed um, in our recent Tribeca show. And as we've mentioned before, these street-level trains, on top of all of the other mess of transportation and things that are going on in lower Manhattan on the street at 10th Avenue, creates a horrible situation for people just trying to cross the street. As a result, it was nicknamed Death Avenue. Right. And let's not forget that one of the things that the people were trying to get to were the ferry terminals that were located along the shoreline here. So and, and the factories and the warehouses and such. So this was a very, very busy area, even though they employed these West Side cowboys, men, you know, on their horses, blowing their horns to try to get people <laughs> out of the streets. Um, it was still incredibly dangerous. But back up here at the 30th Street station, uh, that old depot was no longer sufficient by 1860. So the railroad built a new one between 9th and 10th Avenue uh, and between 29th and 30th Streets with extensive yards then that stretched up into the space of the old depot and even made their way up into the higher up around today's Javits Center. So all of this became train yards behind a brand new depot between 9th and 10th. So a, a whole mess of train infrastructure here already by the 1860s. And if you were headed for a train, though, in the 1860s or 1861, when it opened, you could head over to 9th Avenue. And you can still go there today, and I recommend you do, because you can find the building that replaced the depot in the 1930s, the Morgan Postal Facility. Now, on the 30th Street side of that building, just off of 9th Avenue, you'll find a plaque that reads, quote, on this site stood, in 1861, the station of the Hudson River Railroad. The first passenger to use it was Abraham Lincoln, who came to New York on February 19, 1861, on his way to his inauguration as President of the United States. His funeral train left here on April 25, 1865, for Springfield, Illinois. So in a way, this depot kind of frames his career and his and his appearances in New York. Yeah, in a really dramatic way. And the story of Lincoln's body coming to New York after his assassination in April of 1865 is an important story that we should tell, um, that we should probably even spend an entire show on. But in terms of how it pertains to the depot here, I did look up uh, the next day's New York Times, April 26, 1865, just to see if there was anything more about that station that could take us inside. And here's what it says. About one o'clock, the crowds began assembling in the vicinity of the depot of the Hudson River Railroad Company at 30th Street. Inside the depot, no one was to be seen, except a few ordinary officials lounging about expectant and imperturbed. 
No signs of the special train that was to convey the last remains of our lamented president to Albany were visible. Everything was very quiet. Within the ticket depot and passenger waiting rooms, little crowds were congregated, mostly those who desired to leave the city by the company's trains. The depot itself was almost entirely devoid of decoration, the only emblems of mourning being observable on the 29th Street side. Here, the three large doors leading to the depot were draped with American flags and shrouded in crepe and neatly festooned over the door. So I thought that was interesting, just kind of taking us inside that old station. Well, something to remember that this area connects here with major traumatic events in American history. As you're walking over to the shopping mall, it's something to keep in mind. Yes, it should be a required stop, actually. Another thing that would have been right there, by the way, by the 1870s, was a stop for the elevated railroad. Yeah, I mean, this is extraordinary. And yet another train is introduced to this area because this was the first elevated railroad, this particular line, that would eventually go the length of Manhattan and it would come down Ninth Avenue. And they were experimenting with it in the 1860s. But by 1870, you could actually take it all the way from downtown up to uh, the corner here at 30th and 9th Avenue or 34th, if you wanted to take it all the way up to 34th. So, yes, there's another train. There's an elevated down 9th <laughs> Avenue, but there's also a train over on 10th Avenue. And sometimes people confuse those two. I just wanted to mention one more thing that happened the year before, actually in 1869. The Hudson River Railroad was purchased by Cornelius Vanderbilt. And he merged it with his New York Central, making the New York Central and Hudson River Railroad. And why is that detail particularly important for this neighborhood? Well, because he would then reroute passenger service away from this depot here at 9th Avenue and into his new station, Grand Central Depot, uh, that opened in 1871. So by 1871, then, passenger service wasn't, for the most part, coming into this depot anymore. It was being used for freight, for produce, for milk, for those kinds of things, but not mm. so much. I mean, it still served a couple passenger trains, but hardly any. That's not to say, though, that there weren't a ton of people here in this neighborhood surrounding it, because just to the east of that elevated train, so the elevated's coming down Ninth Avenue, mm -hmm. right? And then everything west is all that you've described here. Well, just east of that elevated train is the notorious neighborhood known as the Tenderloin, known as New York's premier den of vice and crime in the late 19th century. That was essentially between the 6th Avenue elevated train and the 9th Avenue elevated train from 23rd to 42nd. More or less. And it's kind of like where you went for a good time or like to get mugged. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes on the same night. Sometimes on the same night by the same person. Um, <laughs> and so it would seem like having this tenderloin located right next to all of this rail yard mm -hmm. development would be, well, that it would kind of have a negative influence on the neighborhood. Well, I would say overall it has a positive influence because a lot of workers, a lot of railroad employees would come from this area. Um, there are sectors of working class Irish and African Americans who lived in various sectors of the Tenderloin, often in squalid tenements or even shanty towns. So it was a residential neighborhood as well. Yeah, it wasn't all opium dens and gambling houses. Um, on the downside, though, as you hinted at, 
the street gang activity of the Tenderloin and later even the organized crime of the area would spill over here into the train yards. Let's just say that many of the freight trains were uh, frequently broken into and, and thousands of dollars of merchandise stolen. Because, again, these are mostly just freight trains that are parked here. I guess it's better than having passengers getting robbed in those trains. No, I mean, it's, it's true. And, and these freight trains would serve a host of industries that would somehow nestle themselves here on the side streets right next to the railroad station up and down the west side. And let's not forget, actually, just to keep this in mind, up on 34th Street and the waterfront, you had the Manhattan Abattoir which is where barges of cows cross the Hudson River on their final crossing on their final crossing uh, here and were and were slaughtered. And and honestly, the whole West Side, as we know, was filled with slaughterhouses and markets, especially further south. But by the 20th century, really, it's this one. Generally speaking, it's this one railroad company Mm -hmm. or it's this one railroad that is controlling freight into Manhattan along the west side here. Very few passengers are coming in. Indeed, they controlled all railroad traffic into Manhattan because they had the only way in and out of Manhattan via locomotive. All of it controlled by Vanderbilt. But another railroad company would take this area into a new direction in the early 20th century, both literally and figuratively, and that would be Pennsylvania Railroad. One of the largest railroad lines in the country by this time, 1900, connecting the New York-D.C. corridor here Mm -hmm. with the western states as far as Illinois. They were able to serve New York at this point, but they just had to stop on the Jersey side and float people over on ferries. Yeah, they could only get as far as Jersey City. In fact, the original Penn Station Terminal is today's exchange place in Jersey City. So passengers had to get out there, then take a ferry across Manhattan and then proceed to their destination. But in 1902, under the leadership of Alexander Cassatt, Mary's brother. (laughs) Mary's brother. We always like to point that out. Had more grandiose plans. And it was that year that his company began constructing tunnels under the Hudson River that would link to a lavish new station in Manhattan, a station that would, of course, also cater to Long Island Railroad. Penn Railroad would eventually build this station, Pennsylvania Station, between 7th Avenue and 8th Avenue. And between 31st and 33rd, which is just a couple avenues east of Hudson Yards and just a couple avenues east of that old Hudson River terminal that we were Mm -hmm. talking about that Abraham Lincoln came and went from. Why is it so far east into the island? Couldn't they have actually just bought the old depot from Vanderbilt to reuse? Well, that would not have worked for the underground tunnels and the electrically powered trains of the day. Because of the necessary angles of these underground tunnels going into and out of the new Penn Station, it had to be located further into the island. That 11th Avenue was actually too near the Manhattan shore. Oh, yeah. Like the trains would have had to go up at such an incline that they were unable to do so. So they needed a little bit more distance in right. actually to get those trains to grade level. That makes sense. And that also explains why when you're standing at Hudson Yards and you're looking down at those Long Island Railroad mm-hmm. trains, they can't just magically go into a tunnel right there and go into no. Jersey if they wanted to. Like, Mm-mm. you got to go back. 
You've got to get a running start to approach those tunnels. It's much farther east. That is a good point. Although what is interesting is that in 1903, when they began boring those tunnels, they actually started at 11th Avenue and 33rd Street. uh, It's a symbolic old tenement that they tore down at this spot. This is where they started the tunnel, although they clearly cut and covered it all the way over to 8th Avenue. I guess by locating their terminal farther east, it was also farther toward the center of the island. It was more convenient. It just made it more attractive to New Yorkers. Now, those tunnels were bored from the New Jersey and New York side and would meet, finally, in April of 1908. They would open two and a half years later in November of 1910, along with that beautiful new Pennsylvania station. So back to the Hudson Yards development here. Yes. We have... Under today's Hudson Yards at this point is a freight terminal. And just around 33rd Street, a little bit south of that, there are tunnels bored deep underground going under the Hudson River that are serving the Pennsylvania Railroad into and out of New Jersey. Right. So so a lot of congestion, a lot of, a lot of stuff happening here. A lot of trains. A lot of trains. By about 1920, you would also have a massive change to the shoreline itself. With larger ships using the Hudson River piers, those piers themselves needed to get bigger. And by this time, you had landfill creating all of 12th Avenue, pretty much. So bigger trains, bigger ships. You had less people actually living here, Mm -hmm. thank goodness, at this time. It was almost entirely devoted to industry and freight yards. And some of the freight would also then depart by ship. As well. Oh, sure. Yeah. Another major change to the industry of this area, which I find kind of interesting, is that, of course, farther east is the development of the New York Garment District. So, in fact, many of the warehouses around here are now housing clothing. Oh. You know, so the cows are gone, but fashion... But the moo-moos are back. <laughs> but fashion... Yes. <laughs> so, by the 1920s, by the roaring 20s that people get very nostalgic about, This area in the far west side is an industrial area that's kind of a mess and definitely very smelly, very congested. It's not really the sepia tone stuff of old postcards. (laughs) No, no. And it's endemic of the city in general, actually, which is growing out of control with outdated infrastructure, which is why power brokers like Robert Moses would be able to really shape the city in his own image. Here at the Hudson Yards, at these freight yards, some significant changes are about to take place, which will forever change New York City and will set the stage or set the platform, if you will, for the Hudson Yards development. We'll uncover the rest of that story and the birth of the Hudson Yards after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. 
In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show. Sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So we left our glittering Hudson Yards development here in the 1920s, where we had trains from the Pennsylvania Railroad crossing underneath to passengers over at the Penn Station. We have all sorts of industry that's through here. We have an elevated train that's Mm -hmm. still going down 9th Avenue. And of course, we have street level freight trains that are still traveling down the length of Manhattan here down 11th Avenue. 11th to our depot and then switching over to 10th Avenue. Mm -hmm. All of that is still going on in the 1920s. It's, It's actually easy to forget sometimes that there's so much freight happening over here. And I would refer our listener over to the Tribeca show that we did last year because much of that freight was actually dairy products and produce coming from farms um, down into the city, to the city's markets, and to that whole dairy center that was down in Tribeca. But as we also stressed in our first part, it was also very dangerous for people who were just trying to travel on the street by foot, people trying to cross the street. Yeah, and this was something that by the 1920s was too dangerous really to ignore any longer. So the city passed laws in the 1920s that would prohibit railways from running at street level. So that would lead to the construction of an elevated freight railway just off of 10th Avenue called the West Side Elevated Line. It it basically just followed the route of the old street-level trains that used to go down 10th Avenue, except that it had been lifted up into the air. And this elevated line was formally dedicated in 1934. So finally, by this time, all of that produce and dairy and supplies and other freight and such could be delivered safely overhead and sometimes going directly into the warehouses and factories along the way. And spoiler alert here, this would (laughs) obviously remain into present day and would become the basis of today's High Line. 
yes, one big chunk of that would become today's Highline Park. But by the way, that wasn't the only thing that was being lifted into the air because automobiles had also been jamming up the city streets. So the city responded in the late 1920s by planning an elevated highway. And that was called the West Side Elevated Highway or the, the Miller Highway. And when was this constructed? Construction started in 1929, and it would take decades, really, but it would reach the subject of today's show, the Hudson Yards, by 1933. So by the 1930s, there's a lot of stuff going on up here. Now, you kind of uh, skipped over this major introduction here. That is the automobile. <laughs> and so that is what this elevated highway, it's an automobile highway. Yeah, right? cars were the way of the future, Greg. Right. So these other two elevated projects here are trains. This is for cars. Right. And, you know, the city leaders, including most famously, of course, Parks Commissioner and Master Builder Robert Moses, would spend several very busy decades, you know, building bridges and tunnels and highways in an effort to make New York City as automobile-friendly as possible and to keep the middle class from fleeing, basically, to the suburbs. And they wouldn't do this, of course, by investing too heavily in train terminals, mm -hmm. uh, because these these railroads had been making plenty of money on their own. They were private enterprises, they would do this by investing in highways and uh, tunnels. Including a new tunnel that would open up within the decade here, right? Yeah, the Midtown Hudson Tunnel uh, would be constructed in several stages, but that first tube uh, would open in 1937, which would connect Midtown Manhattan to Weehawken, New Jersey. That would, of course, become the Lincoln Tunnel. There would be two additional tubes that would open, uh, one in 1945 and then another in 1957. And even though this tunnel would cross over at 39th Street, which is north of our show here, mm -hmm. uh, the entrance to the tunnel actually bisect the old rail yard here at 30th Street between 9th and 10th. In fact, the entrance is right next to the old 30th Street depot mm. from which Lincoln left. In, 19, oh. in 1861. Is this where the name comes from? I've seen that proposed as a theory. I mean, I can say this much with certainty. The tunnel is named after Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I'm, you're, you're, I'm not 100% sure that they realize that the access lane um, falls right across <laughs> from the old depot from which his body left. Okay, honest Abe. Now, the railroad companies here were probably not excited about this increased attention to automobile traffic, especially all the federal funding that was going into automobile highways. Right, especially after World War II with the Federal Aid uh, Highway Act of 1956, which basically funded the creation of the interstate highway system. And so Americans were just like, you know, embracing the suburbs and automobile culture and turning away from taking passenger trains at the same time that shipping was turning away from railroads and embracing trucking. So railroads were left kind of scrambling to figure out how to turn a profit. Leading to some really innovative schemes, I'm sure, here, because this is mid-20th century. Yeah, and, and you recall in the show that we did on the fall of Penn Station last year, we talked about a, a lot of this because what, in a nutshell, you know, the railroad companies that own these giant terminals like Penn Station and like Grand Central Terminal were looking at their air rights. They were looking to sell mm -hmm. off any aspect of these enormous urban spaces 
uh, so that they could construct office towers or complexes or convention halls or anything else to turn a profit as people were, you know, not using the trains. One of the interesting schemes was a convention center that was proposed in 1956 that would have actually been on the site of today's Hudson Yards, and that was proposed by developer William Zeckendorf. As we mentioned in that Penn Station podcast, Zeckendorf had been pitching a convention center, which he called a palace of progress, uh, to be built atop the old lovely McKinney and White uh, <laughs> uh, Penn Station. Palace of progress? <laughs> yes. How lofty. Ambitious. That spot on top of the, the train station was abandoned. They said it was unfeasible in 1956. And so he pushed a new project further west that was actually expanded. Hmm. I found this article um, from January 6th of 1956 in the New York Times that talks about Zeckendorf's proposed new tower, which would be constructed actually on the site of today's Hudson Yards. It's a new palace of progress, Greg. Um, it has, it's even <laughs> yes. expanded. It's got a television center in there. It's got a convention hall. But of course, they knew that it was also perhaps too far west. So listen to this, quote, It is planned to link the parking area with, with nearby transit and railroad facilities by means of a passenger conveyor belt system like that once planned to replace the Times Square Grand Central Subway shuttle. So they were going what? to have like, you know, in those airports, yes. really long terminals. And yeah, there was going to be some kind of a like conveyor belt to get people all the way over to the west side. Oh, the, how they thought of the future back then. <laughs> <laughs> and Rosie the robot maid yeah, yes. would take your ticket. Uh, but another feature of the project, Mr. Zeckendorf said, would be a 1,750-foot Freedom Tower, the, quote, highest observation tower in the world. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, So because the, the actual, today's actual World Trade Center, a.k.a. The Freedom Tower, the today's second, today's World. yes, today's World Trade Center is only twenty six feet taller than Zeckendorf's. Right? In fact, as early as nineteen fifty four, in an AP article, quote, Zeckendorf said the track area might be used for a vast one hundred million dollar World Trade Center. So even wow. he was, refer you know, so there's lots of lots of parallels with current developments here in the city. This trade center, however. Zeckendorf was never able to build, obviously. Couldn't get the funding. No. And so it was abandoned. Uh, so now what was the railroad supposed to do? Well, in this case, the railroads decided to merge. That is, the Pennsylvania and the New York Central Railroads, both facing these hardships, merged together in 1968 to create the Penn Central Railroad. And why is this necessarily important to the current story of Hudson Yards? Well, because finally this brought together all of those West Side Railroads into the same company. So the Pennsylvania Railroad into and out of Penn Station was combined with the old New York Central and Hudson River line with their yards here, which were still being used for freight. So all of these were under the control of one company. However, that merger was not enough to save the company, and it entered bankruptcy in 1970. Now, you mentioned a convention center. A, a palace of progress. Palace of progress. So it was all the rage in the mid-20th century. Everyone was trying to build convention centers, right? Right, yeah. Uh, now, New York actually had a, a rather terrible convention center in the 1960s, <laughs> right? The Robert Moses Project situated in Columbus Circle called the Coliseum. A famously ugly and user-unfriendly pile of concrete. <laughs> 
<laughs> so true. Well, the city knew it had to replace this pile and had, had even gotten pretty close to building a brand new convention center on the actual piers at 44th Street. So it would have been oh. a convention center that jutted out into the water. That's pretty Exciting. Into the water. Unfortunately, it was the mid-1970s. The city was hard up on cash, and so this plan was scrapped. In the meantime, 1975 here, these yards, the Penn Central yards, were sold by the bankrupt Penn Central to the state of New York. And now there was a more motivation, perhaps more freedom to really start developing something on this spot. All of these yards. Yes, all of them. Soon after, sweeps in another developer by the name of Donald J. Trump. How does he figure into the story? Well, you know, here he's a developing developer here mm-hmm. in the late 1970s. He steps in to broker a deal to develop a convention center atop the rail yards here in the West 30s. From a 1983 article uh, in the New York Times, kind of looking back on, his, uh, on some of his adventures here in the 70s under the headline, The Empire and Ego of Donald Trump. Quote, Donald Trump collected $880,000 in commissions and expenses on the Penn Central's sale of the property to the city for $12 million. Okay, so he was actually in the middle of that sell-off to How the much state. did he make? 880000 But it still rankles him that his offer to build the convention center at a guaranteed price of $200 million and to waive his fee if it were named after his family, was spurned. So the deal fell through, and because of that, we don't have a Trump convention center in Midtown. No, we do, of course, have the Javits Center, which was the convention center idea that was eventually produced upon the rail yards between 34th Street and 36th Street between 11th and 12th Avenues. Construction on that project began in 1980. The building is designed by James Ingo Freed. Javits Center is named for the U.S. Senator Jacob Javits. Today, the building is neighbors to the Hudson Yards, right? right? Well, it abuts the residential part that's going to be built. Yes, but um, when it opened in... 1986. Let's just say it had a number of problems, which we can't get into for this show. <laughs> Some alleged mafia connections, one of the problems. But uh, Is before- that why that cup of coffee is $14? <laughs> might be. That might be one of the reasons. But for our purposes, in relation to Hudson Yard, um, the main problem that we I want to focus on is the fact that no one could get to this convention center because there were very few neighborhood amenities over here. It was so far west, they never built that conveyor belt for passengers. <laughs> no, there was no conveyor belt. There was like no life. It was just abandoned piers by this point. There was and no subway. No, no subway, just those rail yards and, you know, the charming things that one might find in such places in the early 1980s, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but hold on. Let's take, let's get this story back on track, Greg. <laughs> yes. Take us back to Hudson Yards, just south of the Javits Center. Right. So those, Soja. Th- those open rail yards. Well, hashtag Soja. A big thing happened in 1986, and that a new storage yard was constructed here between 10th Avenue and 12th Avenue to hold the trains of the Long Island Railroad. Now, very key 
to our story now as one interesting feature that you can actually still see on that western side that's still open. Go over there quickly because you're not going to be able to see it uh, pretty soon. But no need to panic, listener. I mean, you've got a couple of years uh, right. before they're going to build that platform. Well, so go over to that western side of those exposed tracks and you'll notice that there is space between some of those rows of cars that's sort of wide. You can imagine that they could have just you know, filled it in with another another line of cars. But the yards are specifically designed so that columns could be built in the future and a platform built on top of them and thus those tracks would now at that point be buried under a structure. So the reason we can see the space between some of those tracks is because they anticipated a platform yeah. being built above it. They anticipated the development. But that was decades ago. Why Why didn't they just go ahead and build a platform? Well, look, they tried. They thought of everything. As early as 1987, the corporation Gulf and Western, who owned Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. they wanted to convert a 12-block strip from Pennsylvania Station to the Hudson River convert this into a massive office and entertainment center, which would include a brand new Madison Square Garden over here on top of the yards. And Golf and Western, we talked about them. They were up at Columbus Circle, but who are they again? Well, they were chopped up in recent years, and today it's essentially Viacom. Oh. That didn't go through. Flash forward a few years, 1993, New Yorkers at that time were getting very frightened that the New York Yankees were about to leave New York because mm. that old stadium of theirs in the Bronx was was entirely inadequate uh, for a modern baseball game. So the city tried to entice them with a new arena that would be built just south of the Javits Center over these rail yards. Well, clearly we know that there is no Yankee Stadium over on the west side. <laughs> that, yeah, that didn't pan out. There was a huge public opposition, partially due to the lack of mass transit access to this site uh-huh. in the 90s. So, And by the way, the Yankees, of course, eventually got their new stadium in 2009. As did the Mets. Yes. In 1999, there were active conversations in the city about transforming the west side yards. This was actually probably the most discussed, undeveloped area in Manhattan, uh, the New York Times that year reported on an architectural design competition about rethinking the yards and described the area as, quote, ringed along its western edges by parking lots, car repair shops, and brick industrial lofts. The area is a frayed remnant of industrial New York, part of the city's vibrant cultural mix that now seems all the more precious as working class Manhattan fades ever further into memory. Well, as property values increased into the new century, I'm sure that that land even looked more enticing. By 2005, you had, you know, mega projects all over the place dominating the conversation of New Yorkers. And and this one was very appealing in particular to Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Who was always up for a good mega project. (laughs) Yes. But seriously, the city was facing a shortage of top tier office space. And and the city was watching corporations leave Manhattan and go over to Jersey City or to Hoboken to, to new class A offices. So they needed to build more offices and they were still looking to build a midtown stadium. So in 2005, a project debuted called the West Side Stadium, which would have been a home for the New York Jets football team. 
who which were in New Jersey, which and to this day are in New Jersey. In addition, the stadium would have been a tentpole feature of New York's bid for the 2012 Olympic Games. And this was such a big conversation that was happening for a couple of years. I mean, could New York win the Olympic Games for 2012? It was like, that's what everybody was debating. Before Amazon, it was the Olympic Games. Right. And on this prime spot. (laughs) And the city waged an all-out PR fight in their bid to get the Olympic Games, including putting together uh, slickly polished ads and videos like this one that you and I were just watching. The United Nations and Broadway. And on the west side of Manhattan, the Olympic Square Cluster will host eight sports, the NPC and the IBC, including basketball at Madison Square Garden and athletics at a new Olympic stadium along the river. This stadium will be the centerpiece of a historic transformation to turn this neglected area into New York's next great gathering place, which includes the first major extension of New York's subway system in 25 years. Nearly every venue will be reachable by mass transit for spectators. And that, Greg, is how you pitch a new stadium on the <laughs> west side, complete with, it sounds like, John Williams-inspired music. <laughs> well, actually, that's not how you pitch it, because for many complicated reasons, uh, mostly over funding and, of course, the financial crisis of 2008 and uh, many other things, this project, too, fell through. I it- think that New Yorkers also didn't understand why they were going to pay this much money for a sports arena. In the meantime, two major city developments would change the direction of this remote little promising outpost here, you know, our little future Hudson Yards. Of course, the first one would be the opening of that elevated freight railroad into a new park called the High Line. Uh, that had a rolling opening. It, the first section was in 2009, and then the areas adjacent to the Hudson Yard site opened in 2014. And to be clear, the High Line actually goes all the way up to the southern edge of today's Hudson Yards on 30th Street, and it, it goes west all the way over to 12th Avenue and then up 12th Avenue. So so the High Line really hugs Hudson yeah. Yards as it makes its way north. It's really the grand finale of a High Line walk. In addition, an extension of the number 7 train, which used to just stop at Times Square, a new stop opened in 2015 at 34th Street and 11th Avenue. However, interestingly, they, were, they had also planned a second stop at 41st Street and 10th Avenue, and then they scrapped those plans. So there's only one stop from the original uh, terminal point. That seems unfortunate <laughs> yeah. because it, because that west side along 42nd Street could really use some more service. It really could. So long story short, did the city finally just give up on developing this area on their own and just hand it over to private developers? Yeah, they just they pulled out and said, you know what, let's let private interests develop this spot. And that's pretty much how we got today's Hudson Yards. Now, the yards were now under the auspice of the, the MTA the Metropolitan Transit Authority. The the train yards. The train yards, right. Because they had been sold to the state in the 1970s. MTA now controlled them. They made a deal. Now, there were many deals, but so I'm I'm quickly summarizing this. But in 2008, the MTA made a deal with a joint venture between related companies and the Oxford Property Group, which were these two enormous real estate developers. 
who have designed essentially a miniature city here on the west side over these rail yards. The first structure, 10 Hudson Yards, began work in 2012. To this day, you know, this this is going to be a massive project and it's we're only in really in the middle of it. The phase 1 the east side of this site, with the rest of it to be completed by 2024. Which takes us to last Friday. Friday, March 15th, 2019, when they officially opened Hudson Yards, the eastern half of it. And, you know, the reviews were out. I would say the reviews that I read were mostly not terribly favorable. Well, I mean, here's the the thing. Thousands of people now go to work there. And I think that it's probably great for brand new office space. And there are a lot of, you know, amenities within this development itself, mm-hmm. you know, that you can uh, that you can interact with. But, you know, again, there's still a certain remoteness to this whole property. The architectural design is very globalist, meaning that it feels like it could be in any major city. And of course, it is geared to wealthier visitors, both from its luxury condos and most of the shops in a shopping mall are extremely high end. Well, even the office space is high end. It's funny, you and I were actually looking to celebrate the opening of Hudson Yards. We went into the shops, uh, you know, had a fun time. They had some happenings happening. You know, there were <laughs> pop-up dancers and such. It reminded me, yeah, it was almost like an episode of Absolutely Fabulous, the TV show, because it was like music, 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 champagne, shopping, fashion, more music, right? I mean, there was just like, it was just a flurry of, of glamour and luxury going on. I found myself personally kind of offendy. <laughs> But no, we climbed up and down. We were all over the place. Um, and we we were trying to find a place to get a drink and sort of celebrate the moment with a nice glass of wine. Um, for a number of reasons, we were not actually able to do that. It was opening day. We, you know, kept finding ourselves in the midst of like bars that were closed to private parties and such. And mm-hmm. so um, Greg and I just... We decided to follow the tracks back toward Penn Station and have a drink at a dive bar. <laughs> now, not to say that New Yorkers won't find a purpose here. I do think that once the shed opens, which is this new performance venue with a retractable roof, I think that New Yorkers will be very interested in that. And once the kind of high line, once it becomes more integrated with the high line, mm-hmm. I think it's going to feel a little bit more a part of the city. There will also be the observation deck. Um, once that opens, you know, that's going to give a great new perspective on the city. And there is a new plaza that is a new open space in New York that's definitely worth checking out. And of course, you know, there's the the vessel um, that yes. is free to go to the top of and, you know, wander down. Some might say that the, the vessel, this massive piece of Instagrammable uh, piece of architecture is maybe an analogy for the entire Hudson Yards project. It's a self-contained glittery artifact that entraps its visitors and doesn't go anywhere. Where does that name come from? Do you know? Well, it, its designer, Thomas Heatherwick, gave it the name The Vessel, but said that it could evolve, the name could change. It's not a permanent name. Oh. It could, you know... It's one, fluid. It's a fluid name. Who knows? New Yorkers may end up calling it The Brass Bucket, The Bee's Basket, The Terminator's Ribcage. 
the Pinecone Palace, the stairway to nowhere. Okay, stop. Greg is flailing <laughs> his arms have, in the air. I, I, have six many... or so, I have six or seven more here. Shall we? Let's, just... let's cut this off. But I will just say that when you visit Hudson Yards today, and we certainly think that you should, stand in the plaza and look around, and we hope that today's episode gives a little bit of context to what you're looking at, because I think we were kind of confused and disoriented when we were there but when you see Javits when you look down and see the train yards when you look over and see the High Line you will hopefully have more context to what you're visiting and when you see the massive structures that have been constructed on top of platforms you will probably be in awe of the engineering feat that went into pulling this all off visit our website barryboyshistory.com where we'll have Images, both historical and new, of this particular land, um, from the train yards to the skyscrapers. Including some photos that we took ourselves and even Instagrammed. For that matter, you can join us on Instagram and Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your social on. (laughs) And we want to give a huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. Because of your small monthly contributions, we are able to do this full time. So thank you so much for making this our job and for supporting us. And we wanted to start with this episode in thanking some of you by name. Yeah, we have a, we're gonna, a random selection of some of our patrons. We want to give a big thanks to Sally W., Jim M., Nasha V., Chip P., Lily M., Arvin N., Clara F., Cat I., Nadia B., Shannon K., Mackenzie W., Vinny P., Jimmy B., Catherine S., Mame and Tom M., Audra, Tamala R, Vernon P, Doug B, Marilyn R, and Greg B. Now, every episode, we'll be reading a sampling of names of some of our patrons. And we'll just leave you hanging on those last names, by the way. <laughs> Greg Y. <laughs> yes, Tom M. By the way, Tom M and Greg Y will also be recording a new episode of Barry Boy Movie Club yes. for our patrons. Uh, this month's selection is the thriller from the 70s, The Eyes of Laura Mars. Starring Faye Dunaway in a murder mystery uh, from the 1970s that takes place all over New York. And finally, we'd like to encourage you to sign up for a Bowery Boys walking tour. Yes. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com. We have exciting new tours. We have the Ladies Mile Tour, the Murder and Mayhem in 19th Century NoHo Tour, the Legends and Landmarks Broadway Tour, but also the new Edith Wharton's New York Tour. And we've got new ones coming in the next month. So head over there now, BoweryBoysWalks.com. And if you use offer code SPRING2019, that's one word, you can get 20% off any tour in March or April. So join us and we'll see you in the streets. So thank you very much for listening to our history behind, underneath the Hudson Yards. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. 
Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.